Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of TheMindRenewed.com, coming to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I'm very pleased to welcome back to the programme, um, what I say, a friend of the show, I should think so by now, uh, Reverend Phil mm-hmm. Saker, who is a Christian minister, ordained in the Church of England, formerly based in a parish on the Essex coast here in the UK, but who now runs a house church and who has been on TMR Ooh, uh, four times before, something like that, and uh, also has online ministries, understandthebible.uk, and Sacred Musings, which you'll find on YouTube, uh, which I subscribe to and highly recommend. Phil, thanks very much for coming on again. And thanks for having me. It's been a, you know, I've enjoyed our, our previous uh, conversations, and I was looking back at um, the last time we spoke was just over a year ago. It was June uh, 22, I think, was the last time we had a conversation. Yes. Was that number three or four or five? I can't remember now. <laughs> it feels like we've had many conversations. I think we had a two-parter the first time and then one part last. I can't remember. <laughs> yeah. Four or five, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Uh, well, if it's about a year then, so uh, how has life been with you? I mean, there's obviously been some changes here. Um, I'm sure people will have picked up on that. Formerly based in a parish on the Essex coast and running a house church now. Do you want to tell us anything about that? Uh, yeah, Um so what happened was we've left our former church, which was a Church of England church, and I've uh, ended up starting a, a house church. And uh, I mean, there are quite a few reasons for that. Yeah. Um, one of them being the shenanigans going on in the Church of England just at the moment. And uh, as I'm sure your podcast listeners will know, the Church of England is, ha- is just, you know, <laughs> going through a massive problems at the moment. As it, as it, I mean, it always is, but just <laughs> at the moment more than more than at other times. Right. Uh, also, I think there was just um, a growing sense of frustration with the church. Mm. You know, it's just become clear to me, I think, that we needed to go back to basics to focus much more on the basics of the Christian faith, you know, mm. and about the fellowship and about the teaching. And uh, I just found it more and more difficult to do that in our previous church. Mm. And I kept wanting to change things from the inside, but it came to the point where I, I realized that I couldn't. Yeah. And um, so I think sometimes if you want to do things the way that you believe they should be done, you need to leave. Um, so that's effectively what needed to happen, really. And you actually meet in your house, do you, when you call it a house church? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Mm. It's very small at the moment. It's just my family and a handful of other people. Mm. But um, it's good, actually, because it, it almost feels like we've been doing church for the first time. Right. Um, yes. Yes. You know, it really is like the fellowship that we have is almost like I haven't done it like this before. Mm. You know, you mm. just get to know people really well. Well, yes. Um, yes. And that is actually wonderful. Yes. Um, so, you know, I've been very much enjoying it. But I hope that uh, more people will join us and uh, and so on and so forth. I don't know. Uh, I was chatting to a friend who's actually did a similar thing a few years ago, uh, left the Church of England, started a home church. I'm saying, you know, there's something lovely about meeting in a home. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, think about the early church. So much of the time, the ministry happened in homes. Yes, exactly. But then um, yeah. they've grown and they've moved to a bigger venue in, at times. And it changes the feel of it. So I, I almost don't want to grow and don't want to have to move to a bigger venue. But I think, you know, at some point we probably will have to. Mm-hmm. But um, I've been trying with um, Understand the Bible, trying to set up a church with Understand the Bible for anyone who wants to do a similar thing and get sort of church set up at home. And, uh, you know, I provide a kind of video sermon and, you know, some teaching. That's kind of the idea of it, really, just that mm-hmm. church shouldn't be 
complicated. Mm. You know, it doesn't need to be about the buildings. It doesn't need to be about any of that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I should take a look at that myself because it's one of the things that I'm mm. yearning for, really, is some new expression of church, which in my experience has not yet happened. Um, mm. And yeah, the question of leaving the Methodist church is always on my mind. I haven't mm. officially done that yet, but I know people who have, you know, for various reasons. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm thinking about that. Um, mm. However, basically what we're going to be chatting around today sure. uh, is, well, I think some people might be surprised by this, considering you are ordained and I'm a lay preacher, we're going to be talking about Satan. So that, <laughs> that's slightly unusual. Um, <laughs> there we go. But um, yes. in a way, I conceive of our conversation here being a continuation of that series that I had, you know, following Christ in the new old normal. So I think we will be touching on those kinds of issues, you know, how we might live, how we are living as individuals mm. and as members of church communities following you know the covid experience or whatever you want to call it scamdemic whatever um mm. but the focus for our conversation as i say is going to be on this character of satan because as you said in some of your recent podcasts you know there's been this sense with a lot of people mm. that real evil has been obvious over the last few years that mm. can't really easily be explained away um, in sociological terms or just the actions of individuals. Mm. There's something bigger going on, something more coordinated that itself can't necessarily be explained in terms of grand conspiracies either, unless, of course, maybe we're talking about grand conspiracy on a spiritual level. We can get into that. Mm. Um, all right. Now, you started, or at least my experience of you talking about this subject hit me when you uh, put out a video called Is the Church of England Institutionally Satanist? Um, mm. I had to watch that one. <laughs> um, yeah. Very provocative title, but I think you, in doing that, you flag it up so that we'll pay attention to what you're saying. And actually, mm. you do raise some very serious questions. Yeah. Um, I think you were going to call it something else, weren't you? You would call it, is Justin Welby a Satanist or something? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> yes, is, is Justin Welby a Satanist? But I think the institutionally Satanist one is probably, uh, yes. probably more appropriate. Yes, absolutely. Okay, and uh, use an example, a BBC artist. Anyway, do you want to um, mm. tell us what you're getting at with that? Because it does sound over the top, but I think mm. you make some very important points. Yeah. Um, the BBC, a few weeks ago, did a profile of the Church of Satan in America, which, I mean, it's been around for some years, but is now growing in popularity. It's sort of an official organisation now. And they interviewed people involved. They interviewed some of the, the folks who went to this. It was a convention, I think, that they were interviewing people at. And it just struck me that so many of the opinions that they had were what we might call today maybe woke or the sort of liberal progressive. Mm. It's hard to put a word to it, but if I use the word woke, let's just say to encompass, you know, the transgender thing, the LGBT the um, COVID mm. as well, you know, they were all wearing masks in all of the pictures and everything. So it just seems like it's almost this very religious set of opinions. So if I call that woke, and, and that's what the Church of Satan were doing. Um, hmm. So then I compared that with the Church of England, uh, with uh, certainly with comments which were made by Church of England bishops. Um, so not necessarily the official position, mm. but comments which actual bishops have made, uh, like, for example, the end of life, euthanasia or assisted, assisted suicide. Um, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, George Carey, has spoken out very positively um, and impassionately about assisted dying in support of it. And the Church of Satan also were very supportive of assisted dying. Mm. 
um, abortion, you know, that um, Sarah Mullally, the Bishop of London, has, well, she's a bit wishy-washy, but uh, she was, the, I think, the head of the Royal College of Midwives, I think, before becoming ordained. Mm. And again, she's sort of spoken up vaguely in support of abortion, not particularly, but, you know, saying that she's sort of pro-choice when it comes to other people. And if you go through the list, especially when it comes to transgender and pride, mm. um, which has been in the news lately... The Church of England bishops and the hierarchy, it's indistinguishable from the Church of Satan, the differences of opinion. Yes, in terms of these attitudes, but not in terms of mm. these rituals. I mean, if, yeah. if I go to the actual article itself, so this is the Satanic Temple. Think you know about Satanists? Mm. Maybe you don't. So this is the 20th of May. Mm. Um, and they do talk about some things like an unbaptism, so you get... Upside down crosses and, mm. and all that sort of thing. Pages even being torn out of a Bible to symbolize overturning one's Christian baptism. Um, mm. So these rituals, of course, are not in common. It's the opposite of the rituals, isn't it? But um, mm. I see what you mean in terms of the some of these attitudes here. Yeah. Um, the opinions. Yes. Yeah. The beliefs. And that that's the thing. You know, um, that's what I was trying to say. And I suppose, you know, I mean, I was kind of riffing on um, being institutionally racist. Yes. Um, yes. Because this is the thing that institutional racism, the claim is that, you know, an institution may not like have discriminatory policies. It may not be written down, but it may still be racist because the people in the, the hierarchy, in the positions, make racist decisions. And that's kind of, as I understand it, what it means to be institutionally racist to kind of simplify it. Mm. And so that's why I kind of went with institutionally Satanist. Yes. Because I think, yes, it's not officially Satanist. Of course it's not. <laughs> you know, the, the mm. doctrine of the Church of England is, in theory, on, on paper, it is orthodox. Mm. But if you look at the opinions of the bishops and, you know, what they believe, then it is very much in line with what the Satanists believe or what they say they believe in, you know, in America. Yeah, so this is interesting, isn't it? Because uh, you're, what you're not saying is that the Church of England is practicing Satanism. You're absolutely not saying that. Yeah. It seems to me that yeah, you're yeah. saying is that there are some aspects of the Church of England that are buying into a progressivist ideology, or we might call it a religion, mm. just as it seems these so-called Satanists are also buying into some aspects of this woke ideology. Mm. Um, it's like something in common here, something that's going on in the culture, and both of these traditions, if you like, are, are buying into this. And I say that because this is not theistic Satanism here, is it? In fact, they don't mm. even believe in, in Satan, they say. They this is just a symbol for beliefs that they have. So in a way, mm. I feel like it's just a way of embracing these woke ideas, but doing so by borrowing the name of Satan from Christian theology, um, doing so to sort of, well, they say they're not trying to upset anybody, but I can't mm. quite believe mm. that they're not. <laughs> Some of them are not trying to upset people, mm. um, cause a stir. Yeah, I just see it as both sort of buying into this common ideology. Yeah, I mean, I suppose what I was thinking is, it's just telling that the people who claim the name of Satan are buying into the same ideology as the Church of England bishops. Whether or not they believe in, in a literal mm. Satan, they are nonetheless, in some ways, taking that from the Christian mm. uh, tradition, from the Bible, from the understanding of Satan, mm. and saying, well, this represents freedom, this represents, you know, and th they're pinning to that mast all of that stuff about you know, freedom and LGBT and progressive religious values. And it's the same. That's right, because they're not actually taking on board the 
biblical Satan very much at all, are they? Because, you know, if you look at the, what actually Satan does in the scripture, I don't associate him with compassion and mm. freedom and acceptance and science and all this stuff. So, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. They're just taking this vague idea yes, and they're, yeah. they're using that to dress up all these beliefs that they have. Yes, it's sort of taking a, an idea that originated in Christianity and running with it. Mm. Sort of like um, Tom Holland says about wokeism, actually. It's sort of a complete distortion. Mm. Um, but uh, yes. Yes, and because there are people protesting against them and all this sort of thing, and I'm not sure that's perhaps the best way of going about things. Um, mm. But I came across an article very recently, July the 8th, by a guy called Brandon Smith, writing in altmarket.us, and he writes, because this is American-based, but nevertheless, um, echoes here, mm. American churches are eerily silent when the country needs them most. Hmm. And he speaks as somebody who is not a Christian. Um, he says he had a relatively marginal Christian upbringing. Um, his relationship to organized religions always been to meet it with skepticism. But nevertheless, he hmm. he recognized that the churches, there's something wrong with the churches in not, I mean, just going along with these kinds of things. Hmm. He says, uh, so when I, I hear a deafening silence among Christian churches, hmm. when it comes to the political and social climate today, this is hmm. coming from someone who is not quick to call for theocratic intervention. But he then says, how about the sudden rise of Unitarian and progressive groups making a mockery of churches and co-opting Christian ceremonies to include woke propaganda, LGBT Marxism and moral relativism? Where is the organized response from Christians on this development? The woke cult is creating their own religion by hijacking the religions of others. Um, He doesn't think it's because they want to find inner peace, he says, because they see the church as a center of power and they want a piece of the action. And he goes on and on about you know this where is this mass call for christian churches to reject the woke invasion and he he's obviously very concerned about this and he is Mm. somebody who isn't actually Mm. a christian who can see that we should be doing something about it and we don't seem to yeah yeah i I mean i think it's been interesting here how the um non-christians have seen things more clearly i think Mm. than the church i mean well i mean we could be here all day if we talk about the reasons for that all day and all night and all week um that's one of the reasons actually why I started Sacred Musings, because I suppose when the lockdown first hit, I was completely shocked, I suppose, by how readily the church closed its doors and then didn't stand up against you know, the vaccine mandates um, and has just completely gone along with the establishment on everything, pretty much. And there have been so few Christian leaders who stood up. Yes. I mean, my, my instinct is that a lot of my friends you know, would be against some of the aspects of woke culture like for example with lgbt you know they would say well marriage is between a man and a woman and you know maybe against transgender so they would see that as wrong but i I think that a lot of people sort of compartmentalize it without necessarily seeing that it comes as a package right and that actually i think what we are witnessing is not just isolated and individual things happening yes but this sort of the authoritarianism of the lockdowns yes it's, it's all related i totally agree with you in fact he says it in this article he says woke is a vehicle mm. a mask for a greater monster mm. and it is being forced into the public consciousness i think he's absolutely right i don't think it's just it's just isolated things as you say happening mm. um mm. in fact i picked up a really interesting quote from eugippius so you are aware of eugippius's blog aren't you um, oh yes I've, i read his um, some of his um yes. Substack. yes yes i'm not sure this is a complete mm. explanation here but i think it's really really let me just read this because this really struck me mm. uh, he says our state 
states are some of the most powerful and overextended in history. No system has been so well positioned to impose its vision of politics and culture on its subjects ever before. A few weeks ago, I wrote about the political mechanics of the Rainbow Revolution, but the all-consuming interests of Western politicians in ethnic and sexual diversity surely admits of other interpretations as well. You could say that there is an eagerness to confine human variation to those areas of least concern to the institutional apparatus, mm. and thus to, quote-unquote, celebrate or actively promote all those diversities which are of least consequence to the administrative ideal. Mm. Modern states actually want highly uniform, undifferentiated populations, and they hope to confine personal expression to sexual, ethnic and consumerist spheres. Mm. And I think he summed up a lot of it there. It's actually in the interests mm. of power to get us all divided against each other, to be concerned and obsessed about these things, which actually on the, the wider scale don't actually matter all that much. Mm. And then we're not looking at what power is doing. It makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, that that's really... And it's actually... Um, that ties in with uh, something which um, a friend of mine was telling me about the other day, that... Um, they sent their daughter to um, a primary school. I won't say which one, obviously, but to a local primary school. Yes. And uh, this particular primary school had a um, Pride Week, mm. uh, which was kind of a, you know, celebrate diversity week. And bearing in mind that my friend is visually impaired, is registered blind, is been visually impaired since he was a, a teenager. So he has, of course, uh, an interest in, when it comes to diversity, in disability. Yeah. We, uh, things are often terrible for blind people and, and visually impaired people yes. uh, and so on. Mm. And yet disability was not mentioned once in this Educate and Celebrate Diversity Week. Right. It was instead entirely about basically LGBT and how children are assigned gender at birth and all of that sort of rubbish. Yeah. And it is exactly that, isn't it? It's not with the purpose of promoting diversity in the proper sense of diversity. It's about a certain tick box set of diversity. It's the BBC diversity. Yeah. You know, Maybe diversity of skin colour, but to mm. a man, they all have the same opinion. Yes. You know, yes. that sort of diversity. Indeed. Yeah, I mean, I've picked up a lot of reasons why this kind of thing might be going on. I, I read a book, mm. well, I am actually in the middle of reading a book by Joanna Williams called How Woke One, which sounds a terribly negative title there, although she does talk about how <laughs> we might be able to push back on this. Um, mm. She calls it the elitist movement that threatens democracy, tolerance and reason. Mm. And as you said, I think we've been picking up on some of this in the last three years, haven't we? Yeah, um, very much so. So just picking out some of those things, Although I'm not saying all these points come from Joanna Williams' book by any means, mm. um, I thought it would be useful to mention some of this. I mean, I've already mentioned about fostering division. So there's that sort of divide and conquer. Mm. You know, we're opposing each other rather than looking at any powerful bad actors. Yeah. But it's also clear to me that this wokeness nudges increasing acceptance of censorship because people are mm. encouraged more and more to become hypersensitive to so-called hate speech. Um, mm. which might mean little more than something that upsets you, mm. and to accept the cancellation of people who spread so-called misinformation, disinformation, malinformation, mm. all of which is basically defined by those in power. Mm. So this all helps to persuade people to love censorship, um, mm. for their own safety, of course. Mm. Um, woke, again, if we're going to use that term, and I do think it's useful, uh, mm. and I think this is one of the most important functions, woke helps to neutralize the traditional function of the left mm. because it 
distracts people away from campaigning and protesting about things like, um, you know, warmongering, workers' rights, offshoring of jobs, mm. freedom of speech, uh, corporate malfeasance, etc. That, that, that all mm. increasingly gets replaced by identity politics, you know, race, gender, etc. Mm. All of which, you know, as, as Eugipius was saying, you know, is of least concern to those in power. So mm. it's a means of capturing the left and, you know, whatever you think about the left, it, it did, it does historically have a function in the balance of power. Um, and connected with that, it gives a way for massive corporations, including, you know, like Big Pharma, Big Ag, uh, mm. even arms manufacturers, to get people on their side so that they will be less, mm. there will be less criticism of what those businesses are doing. You know, if they, if they can dress themselves up in, in rainbows and <laughs> parade their diversity credentials, mm. well, they can carry on selling their bombs or whatever with less opposition. Mm. I also think that woke is useful to governments in terms of propaganda against more conservative geopolitical rivals like Russia and Iran, etc. And, and we know that the CIA has a history of that sort of thing, uh, you know, using cultural and uh, artistic propaganda during the Cold War through its mm. Congress for Cultural Freedom. And, you know, looking forward, and I, and I think this is going to be increasingly important um, as a motivation for elite power to use ideas like these, um, it basically allows power to co-opt the less powerful you know, there is huge dissatisfaction brewing over poor prospects, living mm. standards dropping, artificial intelligence taking jobs, mm. a life on universal basic income to look forward to. Um, mm. Therefore, you know, if you can co-opt people now, mm. particularly the young, so that they align with power instead of opposing power, mm. then you've gone a long way towards controlling the future, you know, as things get worse for people. So, you know, I'm sorry yeah. to have gone on so long, but I, I do see... yeah that elite power has many motivations to use this kind of agenda. Yeah. Now, that's that's how I see it. And maybe I'm being over-conspiratorial, but, you know, I see these things. Mm. Um, I think it's tempting to look for a grand theory about what's behind this. I mean, I, I suppose if I might go back to what we were, the original topic of evil and, and Satan and, and so on, mm. you know, looking for a reason why this is happening, I think a lot of people fall down on this because... I don't think there is necessarily one reason sure. that everyone will have mm. their own agendas. And I think ultimately it is just that expression of evil and the lie in the world, isn't it? Which mm. doesn't necessarily have a rhyme or reason to it. It's just against the truth, against what is right and righteous, what is just. And that it is just trying, you know, gaining the ascendancy. Um, it's kind of why I suppose different groups who have different interests will nonetheless coalesce around this kind of woke stuff mm. because it seems to serve all of their interests. Exactly. You know, yes. about power and, yes. and the money and so on. That's right. So I wasn't bringing up any of these particular examples as the main reason. Mm. Just, these all seem to sure. be trends and rationale for why particular centres of power might think, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's go with that. Mm. And in some ways, the fact that we find all this coalescing mm. does, I think, speak of something in the background yeah. that is coordinating this. Yeah. Because that is just so odd. Yeah. It seems so recent as well. It's like, oh, it's happening all around the world. It's well, not all around the world, but particularly in what we think of as the, the West. It's just kind of like it's been there in the background through the, well, say the latter part, particularly of the 20th century. Mm. It's just been there in the background, but hasn't been dominant. But then since uh, well, the last three years, since the first lockdown, I think, it's just unleashed this hell of everything coalescing and it's all gone mad. And then it, I think it's the actual face of it perhaps is more clear 
you know, whereas before it was happening in perhaps different institutions, different groups gradually worming its way through. Now it's sort of like everywhere and people have thought, oh, hold on a second. What was previously happening in different institutions but wasn't connected is now come out and is connected. It's kind of like it's emerged from the shadows. Mm. You know, there was a monster perhaps that was in the shadows in different places but has just come out and, and the light shining on now and you can see it more mm. for what it is. Mm. But it's one rather than lots. Yes, and the monster in our vocabulary would be Satan. <laughs> so Indeed. we're looking at a sort of spiritual headquarters, as it were, to this conspiracy, if you like, mm. um, leading the world away from God's purposes, mm. which I think is more coherent than just trying to say, oh, well, it's all it's the communists or it's the, the Jesuits or it's the Jews or whatever. None of that has ever made sense to me. Yeah. So to see this as a spiritual thing that's happening and fits very much with what the Bible says. And when we look at the mm. end days with the appearance of the Antichrist and all this that we've talked about before, yeah, that, that all makes sense. We could see that on the distant horizon. Mm. Um, so perhaps we should talk about this character Satan. Mm. Let's chat about him, it, them, yeah. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> How would you go into this subject? Oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Name? What does Satan mean? What does that even mean? Indeed, yes. One of the interesting things that I found when I, um, I mean, this is going back some years now, I was talking to a friend uh, who was an atheist, mm. but who was from a Jewish background. And I, I talked about Satan and, and I, I mentioned about the Garden of Eden and about the snake. And, and, and she said, oh, no, it's just a snake. Uh -huh. You know, in, the Jews believe it was just a snake. And I thought, oh, oh OK, really? how strange. Huh. Um, so that is the thing that Satan doesn't have a name in the Garden of Eden. In, in going back to the beginning, it is just a serpent who acts in a what we now come to, you know, associate with and understand as Satan hmm. acts in that way, hmm. um, but is not even given a name. You know, that's very odd. I was expecting her to say something deeper than that because, mm. um, you know, I've been influenced by the work of Dr. Michael Heiser, who sadly has passed on. I don't agree with everything he said by any means, but a mm. tremendous amount of information that is really illuminating. And one of these illuminations is to do with the role of the serpent and how maybe we have misread. Mm. We're reading it with 20th century eyes, 21st century eyes, Western eyes, and we're not seeing that mm. maybe the serpent actually isn't just a snake, but maybe is mm. a snake in the story in its fallen sense when it's been cast to the ground, but before that was some sort of spiritual being. And maybe we'll come on to that, mm. which I find very, very interesting. Mm. But I mean, the name Satan itself just means something like adversary, doesn't it? Or um, uh, somebody who opposes. Yes, it's a, it's, a Hebrew, it's a Hebrew word, I think, which means the adversary. Mm. Um, there are various names for Satan. Um, the word devil comes from the greek i think diabolos oh, yes. uh, which is means the accuser so the adversary the accuser hmm. um i mean if you if you put those two words together that would sort of sum up in the bible i think what satan is and, and what he does Yes, that's right. So the adversary, we get that clearly in the book of Job, don't we? So he's the adversary, mm. he goes to God and asks permission and then gives Job a hard time. Mm. Um, yes. So we've got Satan, we've got Diabolos, there are others as well. It's mm. Beelzebub, Prince of the Demons. Prince of the Demons, we've yeah. We've got the enemy, the evil one, Belial, I don't know how you pronounce that. Mm. Um, adversary, deceiver, great dragon, father of lies, mm. I noticed all these down, murderer, sinner. Mm. But these all seem to be talking about the same individual don't they um i think that is the implication it, uh, i believe that um i mean when jesus talked about evil and satan he, it seems to me that jesus intended there to say that there was one 
adversary, one devil, one Satan, and perhaps other, you know, demons yes. who were under the, the sort of the control of mm. the one. You know, it goes back to a house divided against itself cannot stand. Uh, that was his point there, that if Satan is divided, he cannot stand. So there are two sides. There have to be two sides. You know, there's God and what is good, and there is Satan and what is evil. And it's not like you can have a third side. That wouldn't make sense. Mm. So, yes, there are just the two opposing uh, finding the words is quite hard, isn't it? That's probably why there are so many. Indeed, yes. Um, actually, I have found, before the interview, I said there was a, a little passage from Revelation that knits a lot of these terms together very helpfully. Because, mm. I mean, people can listen to a conversation like this and say, oh, well, how do you know all these are talking about the same beings, you know? Yeah. But yeah. Um, here in Revelation twelve nineteen, and we're taking the Bible as authoritative here, so mm. John writes, and the great dragon was cast out, the old serpent called the devil, called Satan, who deceives the whole world? He was cast into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So you've got a lot of those terms there knit together. Are you sure that's Revelation 12, 19? Cause May not be. Looking um, it up now, Revelation chapter 12 only has 17 verses, according to my... Um, what did I say, 19? Bible Gateway. Uh, Revelation 12, 9. Oh, there we go. That's it. Yeah. The great dragon was hurled down. I've got so many numbers. <laughs> I've got numbers yeah. all over the place here on my yeah. notes. There's trouble with these biblical <laughs> references. Yeah, so we've got great dragon. We've got old serpent. Yes. which must, of course, refer back to the snake, as it were, in the garden. Mm. The devil, that's Diabolos. The Satan, that's the accuser, who deceives the whole world. So as far as the New Testament is concerned, this is the same character mm. who seems to be in charge of these evil forces, including demons, uh, yeah. Beelzebub, prince of the demons. Um, but I suppose I still have the question as to what Satan actually is. I mean, it's often held, isn't it, in theological circles, particularly evangelical theological circles, that he's a fallen angel. Mm. Um, and I kind of go along with that. I don't think of angel, of course, as some being with a body and wings and mm. looking like anything, you know, no, no doubt that could yeah. appear as anything to somebody who apprehends it. That's another matter, but mm. I'm not sure they look like anything in themselves. Um, mm. But um, I find it difficult to establish by looking at the scriptures that Satan actually is an angel, although it's clear to me that Satan is a powerful spiritual being, mm. you know, who is opposed to God and has fallen in some way. Because, mm. I mean, they're messengers, aren't they, angels? He seems to be more than a messenger. You know? Yeah, that, that's all the word means, in fact. Mm. Uh, mm. Both in the Hebrew and the Greek, angel simply means messenger. Yes. And it's, it's interesting, actually, that we have all of these pictures of angels, you know, with wings and, and, and what have you. But actually, I mean, when an angel is described in the New Testament, such as in the resurrection account, is often described just as a young man yeah. uh, wearing white. You know, yes, uh, and not a little girl. <laughs> yes, yes, with exactly. Hair. Yes, yeah. mm. <laughs> yes. But I think the spiritual aspect of things is possibly the more important one. The physical appearance, I mean, you know, it doesn't really, it's neither here nor there, really. Yeah. I think a lot of people get hung up on Satan as being, you know, a red guy with horns and, you know, it's all of these caricatures from art and from mm. cartoons and what have you, probably to Satan's um, delight. <laughs> May people think that Satan is just a child's cartoon or something like that, <laughs> yeah. like a, a, a parable, like Santa Claus or something. Mm. Um, but actually, the spiritual existence, that the existence of beings who are beyond transcend what we can see and hear with our senses i think is actually fundamental to the christian worldview mm. and i think that's what we can sort of see with the world isn't it that you know evil is beyond the way that evil seems to be coming beyond that which we can understand just kind of rationally 
Mm. Yeah, well, let's um, move to the side. I'll come back to the character mm. of Satan or the accuser in a moment. But uh, yeah, you were saying about mm. this is sort of central to Christianity. Well, there are people who would say, well, no, it isn't. You know, um, I think a lot of people who were influenced by the more modern theology, let's say in the 1950s, 1960s. Mm. Um, I'm thinking of the theologian Paul Tillich, particularly, who talked about consilience. You know, we ought to try to make ourselves as close to the culture around us. We still hold on to our beliefs, I think, Um, Mm. but uh, as close as we can to the world around us. So to speak the same language. So in this sense, are we not just speaking in ways that people will consider medieval? Well, it's Mm. not. It goes back further than that, but they might consider that we're speaking in those terms and say, you Christians, you're old hats. You're irrelevant to the culture around. You know, why don't you speak in modern terms? Well, uh, it's interesting. I had um, a chap email me after one of my podcasts about Satan and said, well, now, why do you have to speak about spiritual beings like Satan? Because mm. he said it's very off-putting to a, non- a non-Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that is because of this modern secular worldview where there is nothing beyond what we can see and hear and sense. Yes. You know, um, It's this scientific worldview that everything now has been decoded into scientific fact and it's sort of naturalism, um, mm. even if people wouldn't use that word. You know, naturalism, which is the belief that all that exists is the natural world. That's, that is it. There is nothing sort of transcendent. Mm. And um, what I think I would say is it doesn't matter if people don't believe in it. We are seeking the truth. And, uh, you know, truth has never been determined by what is popular. And Absolutely. Um, mm. Exactly. So the culture around us could change again. So we could wed ourselves to mm. a more naturalistic way of looking at things. I don't know how you would do that as a Christian, but uh, at least we could strip away some of the things that we consider to be less important and then find that the culture shifts again and we're, yeah. oh, we're those old-fashioned modernists. <laughs> mm. How could it so easily happen? And in fact, I see that mm. process already beginning to some extent, I'll go back to Stand in the Park, some mm. of the people I speak to there, mm. if you mention angels or the devil, they're not Christian believers mm. fine they already believe in multi-dimensional beings etc so to some extent yeah this kind of language meets them in the as it were the postmodern world so we're thinking in the 1960s terms and saying oh, we've really got to be we've really got to change what we're doing to fit the 1960s and i think we're we're up a gum tree and you know i think we shouldn't forget that um in the early early days of the church christians were sometimes called atheists yeah. because they <laughs> yes. only believed in one god yes um they didn't believe in the greek pantheon or roman pantheon of gods they just believed in one god yeah. father son and, and holy spirit and so in that culture of course they you know they, they were probably saying well why don't you believe in more gods <laughs> you know all you need to believe is these gods plus your god as well and mm. and the christians were saying no 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 we, no there is only one god mm. so christianity has never been determined by what the culture believes is acceptable and uh, i think it's interesting that your friends from stand in the park are on board and, and i i can vouch for that as well with people you know the, i mean to give you an, an an example from in a different sphere and when i've done um funerals for example the things that people tell you that they believe naturalism is very far from the most people's experience i think yeah. even if what they believe is sort of more folk religion mm. as we might call it mm. um you know there are very i think there are very few actual hard sort of naturalists right. um, around yes mm. and uh, in the academy and naturalism is taking a bit of a beating um i got this book in fact you triggered my memory because i think there is right. an article in this book by a guy that you referenced charles taliaferro something like that oh yes yes, yes he, that's he right. wrote um co-wrote yes. a book called naturalism there you go. So this is a collection of academic essays critiquing naturalism, edited by William Lane Craig, a well-known, oh, yes. <laughs> and J.P. Morland, uh, known to a lot of people there. But this mm. is, you know, this is published by Routledge. This is a philosophical tome here. So, 
you know, it's not like it's the latest thing that's impossible to critique. It's going on even mm. in academia. Mm. As you say, a lot of people don't really believe that we're all just made of chemicals anyway, that there isn't more to no. reality behind the scenes. I think it's impossible to live like that, actually. Yeah. Um, the whole discussion, actually, about um, Satan and God and, and angels and so on, I think the question is, is there something beyond our immediate senses? And I think once you've conceded that there is something, the question then becomes what? And you have to be open to any answer, as it were, rather than just saying, well, I think God exists, but nothing else. Well, if God exists, why not Satan? And, you know, and so on and so forth. How do you explain the evil in the world and, and sort of probing into it that way? I think it's the logical way of thinking about it. And from a Christian point of view, we, we do have the Bible as our guide. Mm. We believe that God has given this to us as a revelation, indeed, that is mm. authoritative for us. Okay, we still have to interpret it, etc. But it's not like we can put it aside and say, well, this is just one resource amongst oh, a lot yeah. of us. No, this is this is central. Oh, yes, very much so. I mean, if I'm going to be quite honest, I don't like the idea of there being any other spiritual beings around than God. Mm, yeah, <laughs> I don't really like that. You know, I, I don't really see the necessity for angels. Mm. I feel the need of some kind of Satan figure to exist to explain spiritual evil. And maybe I'll share an anecdote with you from my own experience. Mm. Um, but all these other things, thousands of angels worshipping God. And all, mm. In some ways, I'd, I'd rather that wasn't the case, but I don't think it would be consistent of me to say, oh, well, I'm just going to reject mm. that in the Bible. Unless I've got some really good reason to interpret that in a different way, but I don't feel that I have. I have to to take those on board, um, unless somebody can provide me with a, you know a, a way of interpreting that. But no, I have to accept that they exist because I accept that source of authority, and I have reasons for that. And you know, obviously, we could discuss that. But um, yeah, I mean, I had a I have shared with people before on this podcast, so I'll just quickly share with you that I did have a very unpleasant experience, which. I still have no other explanation for other than a spiritual oppression experience. Mm. Um, it was in Basingstoke and it was, I was doing teacher training and I went to the house of somebody who was also doing teacher training and we had a great conversation, had a meal. And mm. and then we were just in the, the lounge late at night and he, in the middle of this conversation, because we were touching on spiritual things, he said, oh yeah, and by the way, I used to be a witch and my mm. mother used to be a witch. We were into black witchcraft and started telling me. And I'd never had an experience like it before or since. I felt like I was being pressed out of consciousness, mm. a real sense of fear. His face seemed to change, you know, like the cliched different face appearing. It, I, I experienced that. Mm. Um, although I know his face didn't change. That was a very strange thing. Mm. With my physical eyes, I knew he didn't change, but there was this sort of interpretation. Mm. And I felt there was a chance that I would be pressed out of consciousness and die. So I mm. I spoke in tongues at the top of my voice. And the, the reason why I did that was because I couldn't form mm. the words to say anything. I was almost no longer conscious. Mm. And that broke the spell, as it were. And then I was shaking for hours. We walked around Basingstoke while I was lit physically shaking. Mm. Weeks after that, I had to keep the light on when I went to sleep. Mm. And people have said to me, oh, well, it was, you know, psychological experience. Mm. Okay. But is it reasonable of me, mm. given what I know, let's say, from the Bible, for me to conclude that that's what that was mm. <laughs> uh, when it goes against every mm. kind of psychological experience I've had before? And I have reason to think maybe mm. that was an experience, especially in that context, talking mm. about that subject as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. And and that, and that's that's the thing, isn't it? That anything can be reinterpreted 
Mm. If you believe in naturalism, <laughs> yes. then nothing will yes. will break in. I mean, it, there's a story in um, Devil on the Run, I think. Uh, might not be that book, actually, but it's, it was a book um, which talks about um, spiritual things, and particularly in other countries like in, in Africa, right. where, you know, I think in Western nations, these kind of experiences are perhaps more rare because you get less of the sort of the occult. I think the work of Satan is more hidden, veiled, yes. perhaps in Western countries at the yes. moment. Yes, it's not in his interest to uh, show his face, is it? Whereas perhaps it doesn't exactly. matter in other cultures so much. Yes, yeah. exactly. Mm. But there's a story where, where um, in this particular village, they were scared of a particular demon. And the children, if they went around after dark, would go around carrying a lit cigar. Hmm. A missionary went to this village and he was staying with another missionary. And uh, at one point he was in a corner of the house and he encountered something which he just, you know, described as sort of evil and, and this darkness. And he rebuked it in the name of Jesus and it left. Yes, but then he went back and talked to the other missionary, and, and he told him about it. And he explained. He said, "Well, what do you think? The villagers are scared of nothing, mm. you know." And it's this kind of thing that people mm. think it can't exist because it can't exist. But actually, that's not paying attention to the evidence of the world that we live in. Yes, I was reminded of a conversation that I had mm. with um, Reverend Doctor Robert H. Bennett, and he did some research work in Madagascar. Mm. And uh, he wrote a book called I Am Not Afraid, Demon Possession and Spiritual Warfare, True Accounts from the Lutheran Church of Madagascar. And people are being released from what he argues is clear spiritual oppression. Mm. Satan is is clearly showing his face, as it were, in that culture. Mm. And there are real power encounters going on. Um, oh, uh, well, I mean, I think that um, the idea of demon possession... Again, in our Western culture, we perhaps don't recognise things, but I do think there is oppression that happens. Um, I can maybe even think of people who I know who I wouldn't say were demon-possessed, but certainly there was an influence there Mm. of evil, this being deceived, this blindness, this kind of fog, if you like, and running away from God, running away from the truth. And I think it's desperately sad um, but, you know, again, people have this idea of demon possession as being like foaming at the mouth and, you know, going mad and, and slashing yourself and, and or like the exorcist, you know, something like that. Yes. But, yes. but actually, it, it's far more mundane than that and far more sinister for that reason. It's not, you know, some kind of out there thing which happens in a few, a few crazy places or, in, you know, but it's actually that, you know, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. It's that blindness, hmm. that influence, which is there, which is maybe not scary in, in one sense, but actually deeply troubling in another. Hmm. You know, it is very real. And uh, we mustn't discount these things as just being something that happens in other places like Madagascar or, or, or whatever. No, no. Hmm. And I repeat, this is not something that I wants to be true. <laughs> I'm not really interested in demonology and all this, but it is a subject sure. that is to be dealt with. So I've had a few podcasts mm. around this kind of thing over the last 10 years, you know, some podcasts talking about it all the time. I'm, I'm not that interested in it really. Mm. But I do think it is important, you know, if we're going to say this is one of the things that we believe to establish who this character is. And mm. it seems to me quite clear that this is a fallen spiritual being I would loosely call this an archangel. I'm not sure it ever could be pinned down as such, but maybe, you mm. know, this is semantics. I don't know, you know. Mm. Um, but two passages in scripture have always struck me as significant. And having mm. heard Dr. Michael Heiser, God bless him, um, speak about this, the relevance of these passages seems even clearer to me. Mm. They're very obscure and difficult to talk about, but I find it now 
that I can't look at Genesis 3 and the snake in the garden without thinking there's more to it, that the people are actually created the final form of Genesis 3 were thinking more than we modern Westerners actually realize. Mm. Um, could we discuss around that just for a few minutes? Yeah. Um, so if yeah. I turn, yeah, so I turn to Ezekiel 28 mm. verses 1 to 19. So this is an oracle and then a lament about the ruler of Tyre, the prince of Tyre or king of Tyre. Mm. And it's clearly about that person, but it it uses an analogy, sort of heavenly analogies, sort of sarcastically, really, to describe this person mm. um, and then talk about the fall of this person. But that analogy is something, you know, it's coming from somewhere. And, and clearly there is mm. Genesis 3 type material in there. And there is also, this is what uh, Michael Heiser argued, mm. and who am I to disagree? <laughs> uh, it seems reasonable to me. Um, cosmic rebellion motives from Canaanite ideas which is not to say those then become canon those become scripture but you know that those are informing the analogy that ezekiel is drawing upon Mm. and they maybe tell us something therefore about how genesis 3 might be in people's minds at the time you know at the time of Mm. of the final form of genesis 3 so um Let me just read this. All right. So just a bit of it anyway. So um, Ezekiel 28, 1 starts, The word of Jehovah came again to me, that's Ezekiel, saying, Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, um, so says the Lord Jehovah, because your heart is lifted up and you said, I am a God. Mm. Immediately, see a Genesis 3 connection there. Mm. (laughs) Um, I sit in the seat of God in the midst of the seas. All right, now. He claims there's some sort of terminology there that's a bit Canaanite. Uh, yet you are a man, not God, though you set your heart as the heart of God. Behold, you are wiser than Daniel. All secret things are not hidden from you. So this wisdom, the, um, the serpent in the garden was wise. Mm. With your wisdom and with your understanding, you've made riches for yourselves and uh, worked gold and silver into your treasures. By your great wisdom, by your trade, you've multiplied your riches. Your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Therefore, so says the Lord Jehovah, because you have set your heart as the heart of God's. Behold, therefore, I'll bring awesome strangers of the nations and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and they shall defile your brightness. Mm, that's strange your brightness Mm. Um, and then it goes on into this lament Um, so this is verse 11 and the word of Jehovah came to me saying son of man lift up a lament over the king of Tyre and say to him so says the Lord Jehovah uh, you seal the measure full of wisdom and perfect in beauty you have been in Eden the garden of God you know Mm. the king of Tyre has never been in Eden so there's some weird analogy going on there that's clearly drawing on Genesis 3 Mm. and then there's uh, all these jewels that are mentioned which maybe reference something to do with priesthood every precious stone uh, was your covering the ruby topaz diamond beryl onyx jasper sapphire turquoise uh, emerald gold Uh, it goes on and on and And then it says in verse 14 you were the anointed cherub that covers and I had put you in the holy height of God, mm. where you were. You have walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Mm. Again, Heiser says that's Canaanite imagery there. Um, and here we've got the anointed cherub that covers the, well, what? This certainly brings up images of covering the Ark of the Covenant. And There's a connection here between the fall in Genesis 3, but this anointed cherub, uh, is this the fall of Adam? Mm. He argues, no, this isn't the fall of Adam. 
is talking about the fall of this being that becomes the snake and becomes the serpent. I cast you to the ground. Now, to support this, he also says that what's going on in Genesis 3, he calls it a triple entendre, sort of playing on words. Mm. So we have the serpent, which is ha-nakhash. He says it can mean three different things. It can mean the serpent. Yeah. As a verb, it can mean to divine, you know, like, and then somebody who practices divination would be the noun of that way of using that word. But it also can be an adjective to shine. Mm. And it can be used as shining one. Mm. It has all those connotations there, the shining one. Mm. <laughs> um, even the word seraph, seraphim, also can mean burning and is used of serpents as well, fiery serpents. So there are lots of these suggestive things that maybe there's more going on in Genesis 3 than we usually realize. Mm. And maybe some of this stuff that's in Ezekiel and indeed in Isaiah, which is, has some very similar things here, should be informing how we read that. Um, so that may be the fall of Satan, mm. indeed, that's going on. Yeah. Um, Interesting stuff. <laughs> it, it, I think one of the problems, I may say problems, but um, the features, shall we say, mm. of prophecy, you always get this in scripture, is that usually there's more than one thing being referred to. Mm. And in fact, actually, just on my um, Bible study, I was doing an Understand the Bible the other day from Isaiah chapter 7, is a passage which we often have at Christmas. Yes. Uh, which yes. is the virgin will conceive and give birth. Now, that's quoted in Matthew's gospel as referring to Jesus. But if you read it in context, it is a sign for Ahaz, King Ahaz. And it looks, reading on through Isaiah, it is actually Isaiah's own son who is the sign. Yes. Um, and I think this goes to um, what biblical prophecy often does, mm. which is you get what uh, scholars call typological fulfillment which is there will be a type. So obviously, I think Genesis chapter 3, Satan is the type. But then through scripture, you get people acting in satanic, if you will, satanic ways. It made me think actually of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which just says, 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 9, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. And I think that's so important is actually perhaps not necessarily thinking about specifically who Satan is in terms of, is he a fallen angel? Is it, But how does he work? Mm. You know, the prophecy against the king of Tyre, I think they are saying, you know, there was a type and that the king of Tyre is acting according to that type, which is sort of satanic or serpent-like right. perhaps. Yes, yes. So, you know, setting yourself up saying, I am a God, mm. I am in in his place, I am wise, you know, rebelling against him. Mm. Um, I suppose that's why those comparisons are being drawn, mm. is saying there is a type there and you, this is how you are acting according to that type. Yes. And I, I suppose it, it sort of goes back to that differentiation that, as we were saying, that there being two sides, you know, which type are you acting according to, you know, to the godly type mm. or to the satanic type? And um, mm. at the end of the day, I guess there are only the two. Yes. Um, yes, I can see why Ezekiel has done that as, as a way of imaginatively having a go at the King of Tyre. Uh, but the way in which he does it, I mm. do think there's got to be more to this than just some colourful way of talking about it, because he is drawing in those traditions that end up being the final... I'm going to keep on saying this because we don't quite know when the final form of, of Genesis 3 was created, do we? Mm. It may have been even after the time of Ezekiel writing that. Mm. And these other traditions as well. Do they end up informing how early people did actually read that snake? 
snake in the garden who is is thrown to the ground. Mm. What was he before? Did he have legs before? I mean, it's, it's kind of the wrong question, you know. <laughs> mm. um, I don't think it's about. I don't think it's yeah. describing anatomy. I think it's symbolic of a fall that mm. is happening there, um, from a position of wisdom to one of being judged, um, along with humanity being judged as well. Mm. Um, Sort of being cast down in pride. Cast down, yes. Being cast down, Yes, yeah. that's right. And we see the same mm. sort of thing in, in Isaiah. It's a smaller passage. It seems to be tapping into the same kinds of ideas, Isaiah 14, so 12. Um, mm. So this is talking about King of Babylon here. Um, How you are fallen from the heavens, O shining star, son of the morning. Mm. That's where we get Lucifer from, because the, the Latin Bible translates that. So the shining star is Lucifer. Mm. Uh, so how you are fallen from the heavens, O Lucifer, we might say, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you said in your heart, I will go up to the heavens. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation. Mm. That's a Canaanite thing, apparently. You know, a bit like Mount Olympus. Um, I will go up above the heights of the clouds. I'll be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Mm. You know, it's not just talking about a king. It's drawing an analogy with something grander, bigger than that. Yeah. Um, you know, our ancients, when they're looking at Genesis 3, thinking about that kind of thing. Mm. Um, well, this question goes back a long way. I found, I was looking at blogs about this, you know, and I found a link to Oregon way back. Mm. Oh, um, wow. Third century here, second, third century. Mm. It's a little quote from him. This is from his De Principius, all right? <laughs> uh, I'm not saying he's an authority. I'm just saying this kind of possibility goes back a long way. So he says, most evidently by these words, is he shown to have fallen from heaven, who formerly was Lucifer, and who used to arise in the morning. For if, as some think, he was a nature of darkness, how is Lucifer said to have existed before? Or how could he arise in the morning, who had in himself nothing of the light? Nay, even the Saviour himself teaches us, saying of the devil, Behold, I see Satan fallen from heaven like lightning. Mm. So he seems to be taking that as an indication of the fall of Lucifer. Um, and he says in another place, just one more, of Ezekiel, he says, In a similar manner also, what is spoken of the prince of Tyre cannot be understood of any man or king of Tyre. And then he says of the Isaiah passage, and how could we possibly accept as spoken of a man what is related in many passages of scripture, and especially in Isaiah regarding Nebuchadnezzar, for he is not a man who is said to have fallen from heaven, or who was Lucifer, or who arose in the morning. So that's going on in his mind. Mm. So is it a window, perhaps, onto how we should be looking at Genesis 3? I do wonder. Yeah, and it's sort of interesting that this passage here, Isaiah chapter 14, is similar to the Ezekiel passage in that it is addressed to a king, mm. but it seems to draw on on language which is grander. Mm. I mean, if you look in Revelation, Babylon comes to represent the domain of this world, the domain of Satan, I suppose, against God. And um, I guess you could say that Nebuchadnezzar, therefore, is the representative of Satan. Yeah. Like I said, with the typology, you get human kings anticipating Christ, like King David, for example, a type of Christ and, and, and so on. And uh, it seems to be working the other way here, mm. that uh, Nebuchadnezzar here is sort of um, a type of Satan. But the, this is the thing, it's, you know, in order for there to be a human king to be a type of Satan, there has to be a Satan. You know, to draw on a type, there has to be a type to start with. Mm. So, you know, it's kind of interesting that they've taken these verses about falling from heaven mm. and raising my throne you know against and saying mm. in you the human king doing this you are acting as one did 
you know, long ago. Yes. Um, in ancient times. So there, there must have been some sort of, as you say, uh, there must have been some sort of um, understanding within the Jewish world or the ancient world at, at that time of this being the case. Um, yes, I mean, obviously yes. the words of scripture are inspired, but yes, I mean, um, there must have been some thought that this is beyond, you know, referring to something yes. beyond just a human event. Yes, and that pattern is important, I think. So we have mm. a king who oversteps the mark and is judged for that, is thrown down because of that. And that pattern we see in the analogy being reflected spiritually. As you say, there's some tradition or collection of traditions being drawn upon there. Mm. Um, you know, this gives me grounds to suspect that this character of Satan was not always evil, um, was not always fulfilling these functions that he has now, but was originally part of God's perfect creation. And this has gone wrong in a, in a way that, you know, is perhaps analogous to the way that human beings have gone mm. wrong as well. Because otherwise it seems incoherent to me um, that God would create something evil <laughs> um, that he'd then have a battle with and we'd all have a battle with. You know, this seems to inform me that um, this is a, a fallen, well, I say angel, well, technically maybe not, but... Perhaps it's a distinction without a difference. It's a, mm. a fallen, previously or hitherto glorious spiritual being. Mm. Um, it makes sense to me anyway. Uh, yeah, I, I suppose it sort of gets into the question of why evil exists in the world in the first place. Because as, yes, as you say, why would God create evil? Mm. And I think the answer, the typical answer which the church has given, mm. is that God didn't create evil. In the sense that evil sort of is arises out of an absence of of God, or a, right. I'm not sure if that's quite the right way of putting it, but privation, isn't it? The, is, yes, yeah, something like that. Yes, evil is a privation. That's yes. the. Yes, yes. I think that's what Augustine said. Sure. Um, hmm. There's a theologian um, called um, Don Carson, who's a, a conservative um, Christian theologian, who um, yeah. who said that uh, evil sort of um, is related to God, sort of uh, asymmetrically, good and evil. That good comes from God, but evil. Uh, exists but is never sort of attributable to god in the same way mm. if you like yes and i think that however you put it evil is not the will of god in the way that good is mm. definitely you know evil is the antithesis of god's will always yes people often make a distinction between a permissive will and active will don't they mm. so god has the active will to bring about good mm. circumstances but he permits evil to exist Mm. because overall that fits his purposes rather than not allowing that. And that connects very much to free will. So we're given free will. So we have the choice, um, you know, in the Garden of Eden, you've, you've got that story with them. Well, they don't have to do this, but they choose to arrogate to themselves the decision, you know, by eating this fruit or whatever mm. that symbolizes. I think it symbolizes to say, I, I think this is right in my own eyes. I'm not going to take any notice of what God says. Mm. I'm now the master of my own destiny. Mm. Well, that's an act of, the will and if you don't have that okay i know people say oh you'd be a robot otherwise i know but i think there's truth in that you'd be a robot otherwise um but god does not want that he wants free beings to be able to relate to him and to each other in love and that can go wrong and god knows that's going to go wrong but it's better to create than not to create um that's how i see it and i mm. wonder whether that's true of beings like this as well mm. that they were given freedom so they could turn and it was better for god to create than not to create Mm. Again, it's something that makes sense to me. I think we might have a slight difference of opinion <laughs> there because I think you tend more towards the Calvinist position on that than I do. But um, 
Maybe that's not a big issue. I don't know. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, I suppose I, I would say we don't have free will <laughs> okay. um, because free will is not a word which is found in in the Bible, which is which is interesting. The Bible does kind of treat us as if we have responsibility. Yes, you know, like Psalm thirty two, do not be like the animals which you know must be controlled by bit and bridle. Mm. So it's kind of the Bible is is very 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 funny because it, it sort of treats the absolute sovereignty of God yeah. on the one hand yes. and treats us as if we have free will on the other. Yep. And how one puts those two things together, I mean, <laughs> it's always been a, a, a debate within the church. Mm. Um, I think for me, I would say that the idea that God is in some way has evil on a leash, not that God does evil but that God somehow has evil under control. Mm. So I was thinking of um, the story of Joseph and his brothers, you know, you Joseph in the Amazing Technic kind of dream coat. But um, I'm sure your, your listeners will um, know what I'm talking about. But uh, in Genesis chapter 50, uh, verse 20, Joseph says to his brothers, you intended it you know, to harm me for evil, but God intended it for good. Yes. And the, the, it's the same word, intended. Mm-hmm. You know, God intended yeah. it. For one thing, they intended it for the, for evil, yeah. and I, I feel like that is a good way of looking at it. That at the end of the day, sure. every bad thing that happens works for good for those who God has called, um, which is what it says elsewhere. And and that's my hope that every evil thing that's happened to me has ended up for good mm. in in some way. Because mm, mm. at the end of the day, so much of this is just a mystery, isn't it? It is. Yes. Why did God permit evil? Uh, well, I can't I can't really say why God permitted evil, but I can say that in my life, in the experiences of something bad happening, it has ended up with something good. Mm. I could go through many, many such examples of that. And I suppose working out from my own experience, I have to say there is some higher purpose to it, mm. um, which we only see dimly at the moment. We only see you mm. know, through a glass darkly, to use the Apostle um, Paul's phrase. Yes, I mean, obviously there is that tension between God's absolute sovereignty and what Mm. appears to be our freedom, which I think is real. I I do believe in libertarian free will. Mm. And the way that I sort of stitch that together is, I suppose, in a kind of Molinist way, um, which we talked about on the podcast before, Mm. in that I see that God knows what we're going to do. Therefore, out of that foreknowledge can arrange circumstances. So as far as we're concerned, it might be the wrong thing. Let's say what you would, you know, the example you came up with there. Mm. But God will say, okay, I know that's going to happen, but I will make sure that good comes out of it. And as it were, chooses that world mm. to actualize that world, knowing all the things that are going to happen in that world. That's a way of making sense of it to me. Mm. But I know we're on either side of the theological divide on this one. Uh, perhaps it doesn't really matter, but um, I thought that would at least come up in our conversation. Mm. But I suppose that's what draws me towards the importance of this fall. Mm. You know, I just can't accept that this being is created with these these evil attributes. That doesn't seem like mm. the kind of thing that God would do, but rather these attributes come as a consequence of the fall of this being. And God knew that was going to happen. And it was you know, better to create than not to create. Um, so that's what happened. Um, mm. But I'm not happy about the fact that this being exists and, and exerts that influence in the world. And I just wish that the church would take this seriously and not brush it aside and have a caricature, mm. childish, very often notion of the story in the Garden of Eden, let's get beyond that, rather than actually getting into some of the deeper messages about that. And realising this does warn us and inform us about the world around us. And but there we are. I, I suppose, you know, that is part of the thing, isn't it? It's funny, going back to 
right at the start about the um, church and institutional Satanism, it, it just occurred to me as you were saying that, that the Satanists uh, in America don't believe in a literal Satan. And it, it strikes me that neither do most of the Church of England bishops. That's true. Um, so it's, yes. another, it's another similarity, which I hadn't actually really picked up on. Mm. It sort of goes back, again, getting to the heart of the Christian message. What are we saved from? Mm. Um, because if we're not saved from evil then in what sense are we saved? If you don't really believe in evil, do you really believe in salvation? Well, actually, I was speaking to my aunt a few months ago. Uh, They live in the Reading area, and she, for some reason, was asked to speak at a church somewhere. And um, she said her bit, and then a lady came up at the end and said, well, very sorry, thank you for what you said, but we we don't talk in terms of salvation here. (sighs) And my aunt was just, well, she was dumbfounded, really. Um, I don't think she really understood where that lady was coming from who had said that to her, but I'm not sure I do, but I do wonder whether that church has become so liberal that they don't even think in those terms anymore. Um, Yeah. I've heard that sort of thing before, but not quite so... So bluntly. Mm, So bluntly, exactly. Yes. Yeah, and that's pretty naked, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Are you aware of that um, classic book by uh, J. Gresham Machen, Christianity and Liberalism? I'm not, no. Um, It was published, Mm. I think they just had the 100th anniversary of the book, I think possibly last year. Mm. Um, But he was a scholar at uh, Princeton, I think, in America, a Christian minister. And he wrote this book, Christianity and Liberalism, that argues that liberal Christianity, and of course, back then, liberal Christianity was sort of in the ascendancy from Germany, the higher criticism and and, and so on and so forth. That was very much what they were engaging with. Mm. It sort of morphed a little bit today. But um, he argues that they're separate religions, Right. that liberal Christianity is not Christianity. Mm. So hence, you know, you can say, well, we don't talk about salvation because we've got an alternative religion. Mm. It goes back to the whole Satanist thing again, you know, because if we don't have salvation, well, what religion do you have? Certainly not the Christian one. Yes, and I suppose if you don't have the Christian one, but you still have some of these Christian terms historically hanging around in in your tradition, in your building, (laughs) Um, you could then start to make those words mean different things. And I've got an Mm. example here, coming back to the woke thing. Mm. Um, I came across this, a sparkle service. Uh, This is allegedly at a Lutheran church. Um, Well, okay, so I've seen this. uh, So there is somebody doing this. Um, So I've got this from the transcript. So this is not authoritative because I don't know what the provenance of this, but nevertheless, it was there and somebody was commenting upon it. And there was a lady priest, apparently, who says, "Um, I invite you to rise in body and spirit and let us confess our faith today in the words of the Sparkle Creed, Mm. which I've never heard of. Um, And the creed goes like this. I believe in the non-binary God whose pronouns are plural. All right. Yes, enough said. <laughs> All right. Um, oh, no. No, I'm going to say the rest. I believe in Jesus Christ, their child, oh, who wore a God. fabulous tunic and had two dads oh. and saw everyone as a sibling child of God. I believe in the rainbow spirit who shatters our image of one white light and refracts it into a rainbow of gorgeous diversity. I believe in the Church of Everyday Saints, as numerous, creative, and resilient as patches on the AIDS quilt. Oh, make it stop. Whose feet are... <laughs> it's, it's a self-parody, isn't it? But, you know, it was done in... Seemed to be done in, in all seriousness. Uh, whose feet are grounded in mud and whose eyes gaze at the stars in wonder. I believe in the calling to each of us that love is love is love. So, beloved, let us love. I believe, glorious God, help my unbelief. 
Amen. <laughs> so that's a pretty extreme example, but there you go. You can plug stuff in, use Christian terminology, and end up with something that doesn't yeah. strike me as having much relevance to Christianity yeah. at all. No. Um, Mm. And, and that that is actually um, i mean that's liberal christianity all over it's parasitic that is it takes the words which christians typically use and uh, assigns a new meaning to them yes and, and actually this is what the bishops the archbishop particularly are very good at doing they sound very christian mm. because they use the words of the church use the traditional words of christianity when it suits them mm. but what do they mean by that yeah. You know, it's, it's like a wax nose, you know, it can mean anything. Um, <laughs> yes. Humpty Dumpty time, you know, yeah. so when, I, when I use a word, it just means exactly what I choose it to mean. Yeah. You know, so rather than using the words as Christians have typically understood it, they use the word in a modern sense, which is amidst a, vi- a variety of explanations. Mm. That's how they try and keep everyone happy, I think. <laughs> Indeed. And then very difficult to know how one could turn the, the juggernaut round in such a situation. Mm. You've got the bishops at the top wearing two masks, etc. Was it right that uh, Justin Welby uh, actually did that? Or was it a meme? Point, I'm not sure. I think at one point he there was a picture of him wearing two. I'm, I'm sure there was. <laughs> Going over and above to uh, show yeah. his uh, woke credentials. Yeah, so I mean, can you turn this great big yeah. tanker round? You know, the amount of momentum it has seems to be vast. You've walked out of the Church of England. Um, I've effectively walked out of the Methodist Church. Mm. I technically still have a membership, but um, mm. looking elsewhere, as I've said many times before, for an alternative expression of Christian faith. Mm. It's not non-binary and plural and two dads and all that. <laughs> that's an, yeah. oh, that's, that's an extre- very, very extreme, of course. But uh, It is, yeah. But nevertheless, uh, being so crazy, one wonders whether we're going to see more and more of that sort of thing. Mm. Um, so when, when we left our church a few months ago, you know, we thought, well, what should we do? And, and we just felt like there wasn't a church that we could go to mm. because every church around here had capitulated to the lockdown yeah. mentality. Yeah. Around there, um, there was it, a, we have to say, don't we, that there are churches that, that didn't. Yes. So not talking about them. We're talking about a trend, a disturbing trend. Yes, that's right. Yes. Yeah. And we just felt like the only option was actually to set up something different. Mm. So rather than going to another church, we felt like, well, it, it was better to actually set up a new church at home. Yes. So although it would be small, you know, in our home, in our front room, rather than in a, in a building, dedicated building or, or what have you, it was church and my experience over the last few months has been actually i mean like i said to you um earlier i feel like we've done church like we haven't done it before Mm. almost like we've been doing church for the first time really and um personally i feel like that's more the way that things are going to be going Mm. rather than trying to change the direction of an oil tanker yeah and something which is i suppose a lesson that i think i've learned over the last year or two is that you know we can't put faith in institutions, mm. and it's interesting you say about leaving the Methodist Church because um, I mean a, a while back I read a biography of John Wesley. You know how God used Methodism to sort of renew the Church of England, mm. but now Methodism has just gone down the same road mm. by and large. In fact, perhaps is to some extent further down that road in in in, in various ways. Mm. You know, and you think how did a, a movement that started out with John Wesley preaching in the fields, preaching to miners, preaching to you know the common man, 
and preaching the gospel, preaching the message of salvation, how did that yeah. kind of solidify into Methodism, which then has just slidden down the same liberal road as the Church of England and many other denominations? I think that's what institutions do. I think you're you right. Know, institutions yes. solidify. Yes. And it worries me that I'm seeing more and more people now saying that the mm. only option is the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church. It's like we've gone back to the Reformation. You know, the Catholic Church, I think, since Vatican II have been right. more open mm. to mm. other expressions of the Christian faith, like Anglicanism. I've, I've seen more and more people, like um, Eva Vladingerbrook, uh, recently became a Catholic. Mm. And uh, she has been saying, you know, that it's the only way of standing up against all the woke stuff. Mm. And I think, actually, the church is not an institution the church is not equivalent to any human institution. The church is the people of God. Mm. And that is what stands mm. at the end of the day. Yeah, so I wouldn't criticize anybody who decided to do that for mm. those reasons or whatever. But I agree with you that that's not going to be the answer that we all yeah. suddenly decide to become Catholics and then find that maybe even that starts to mm. go in, in, in strange directions. Mm. But um I think we see this mm. problem with institutions all over, don't we? It's not just the Christian church. Mm. We've seen it with the medical establishment. We've seen it with uh, academia, with publishing, with journals. Um, mm. And people like Brett Weinstein, who I seem to be quoting more and more these days, saying, look, there's a rot mm. that the pandemic revealed to us, the so-called pandemic. Um, mm. it, it diagnosed the problem. Well, it's a problem that's not just in Christianity. It's all over the place. Mm. I think um, Abraham Kuyper, mm. the uh, Dutch Reformed theologian, I think he was also the prime minister yes, of that's right. uh, Dutch prime minister for a, a time as well. So, you know, yes, amazing right. to have a yeah. theologian and prime minister. But but he um, distinguished the church as institution and the church as organism. Mm. And I think his distinction is a very helpful one, which is that there have to be institutional aspects to any organisation. That's what happens when it grows. You know, you have to have structures to keep it in place and the structures are there to protect. But that the structures have to be there to protect the organism. Mm. That's what I think has come undone. Mm. The structures have taken over the organism. Yeah. So there is life in the church. There is still an organism there, but it's dying. Yes. And I think that you could say the same thing about some of it, like government, for example. Mm. I've been um, looking into um, oh, who wrote the treatise on government, uh, John Locke. Mm. It's saying that the government is the people. Yes. You know, the government is not separate from the people, but government is the people. Mm. Where we are now is so different to that. Government is an institution now. Yes. I think we need to go back to, you know, these institutions just becoming organic mm -hmm. and becoming the organism again yes. where there is health rather than the institution, which is just decays and dies and which just becomes hollowed out. Indeed, and is being increasingly um, wedded to various elitist powers. Um, mm. Government itself. I mean, how much is that now a corporate entity? <laughs> yeah. And, and maybe that's part of the, the reason why everything has capitulated, because institutions can be um, captured. Yes. Exactly. Uh, perhaps more easily than an organism. Mm. I mean, if you think about um, General Synod, for example, General Synod be meeting the last few days to discuss all, you know, the business of the Church of England. But, you know, General Synod, what relationship does General Synod have to Jesus and to the gospel? Oh. And you think, well, it doesn't have any really at the moment. Oh. And that is the problem that the institutions can become completely divorced from the purpose of the organism. <laughs> yes, thank you. The word was capture. Thank you very much. That's Captured. exactly what I was yes. after. Captured. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. yes. So I suppose in a way, this vision, this symbol of John Wesley is quite a good one to keep in mind, to mm. break away from 
institutions if you feel the need to do that in your particular situation and to try something new. I know we've we've said this before a number of times, but it does seem to be the direction of travel and it's something that you are mm. experiencing um, and something which Stephen Buckley, who's, who spoke as well in this series, experienced mm. during the pandemic, uh, so-called pandemic. Yeah. Quite how that's going to work out in my own life, I still don't know, but I, I still have this feeling that it, it has to. Mm. Um, I can't see any other way. And that surely God is going to do something along those lines. Mm. He's doing it with you. Um, yeah. <laughs> but he's going to do it with me in some way at some point. Yeah. Anyway, it's been a very, very interesting conversation as usual, mm. Phil. Thanks very much for coming on again. Thanks, Can I have to draw it to a close because I've got to go and get our little un from school. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, um, but yeah, always a great pleasure to speak to you. Uh, very, very thought-provoking stuff. And thank you for you know the work that you're doing on YouTube and elsewhere to uh, provoke these thoughts. Certainly wouldn't have come across the idea of, uh, is the Church of England institutionally Satanist? What a thought. <laughs> but as I say, it was, it was a rhetorical flourish on your part, but a very, very useful one yeah. because it did allow one to think in ways that yeah. I'm quite thought about before not quite like that that's the idea and that's that's kind of there's a verse yes. in proverbs that says as iron sharpens iron so i think one man sharpens another something like that that sort of thing but hmm. the idea that you know you need we need each other to bounce ideas off of and that's how ideas grow and and that's why free speech is so important absolutely um absolutely and that's why conversations are so important yes yes and i hope therefore we've helped to sharpen the iron of listeners as well I and i hope so. we haven't been too negative because of course god is in charge and god is doing mm. something through all this however perplexing it certainly seems mm. uh, quite a lot of the time um, but yeah God is in charge God is sovereign as we've said a number of times during mm. this, and uh, he certainly defeats the Satan ultimately um, and indeed in our experience if we trust him so uh, mm. yeah thank you very much indeed Phil great stuff um, look forward to speaking to you again one day thank you very much Show notes for this program can be found at The Mind Renewed, themindrenewed.com, especially if you're interested to find out more information about the possible Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, and Genesis 3 connections. Uh, you'll find there links to material by Dr. Heiser, of course, um, and indeed other scholars. It's not just him seeing these connections. Podcast music by the brilliant Anthony Rajakoff, attribution, non-commercial, share alike, 4.0 international. You have been listening to me, Julian Charles, and my guest, the Reverend Phil Saker, and I very much look forward to speaking to you again in the near future. <laughs>